Well, we are going to uh, be getting a COVID-19 update at 2 o'clock this afternoon. So we will bring that to you live right here on the program just as soon as it gets underway. Likely a lot of questions about the return to school and what things are looking like as kids get back into those regular schedules. Well, my next guest has shared some thoughts on that as well. Colin Furness is an epidemiologist, also assistant professor of information at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for making some time for us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, you put out uh, a series of, of pieces of information on social media, specifically looking at schools and what the return of the school year uh, is going to be. You started it, though, talking about the fact that uh, people have been asking you what your plans are as far as for your family, for your kids. Uh, do you mind sharing uh, kind of how you've been dealing with that and what those plans are? Sure. I mean, I guess I would call myself a frightened parent, uh, along with a lot of other parents out there. And, you know, there aren't simple answers. I think uh, this year is more dangerous than last year because masking is so much lower, because so many more people are just saying, I'm done with COVID and I'm just not going to be bothered. And of course, the problem is that COVID isn't done with us. So it's harder to talk to our kids about wearing masks when so many people aren't. And, And I think one of the important things I said was, we need a strategy to talk to our kids about why so many adults don't seem to be concerned about this. And what I said to my kids was, look, adults smoke, adults drive after drinking, adults do some bad things, and they use denial um, to avoid being afraid. If they just pretend it's not a problem, then they can convince themselves it isn't, and that's not an example we should follow. And I, and I think that's, that's what I've tried. I'm, I, we can talk again in several months and, uh, as to whether that was successful or not, but we need to deal with the fact that masked mask kids are now in a real minority, and to me that's just really, really concerning. And the, the other piece I want to really emphasize is that not all masks are the same. COVID is airborne, even though provincial governments will not say so and will not act on that. It is. And because it's airborne, you need a respirator mask, like an N95 mask, and and you need it to fit well. So there's work for parents to do with kids to find a mask that is comfortable, that fits well. It can be done. Uh, It's not necessarily easy, but it's worthwhile. Right. Okay. But even last year or when we've had masking in schools and, and more people doing that and masking up a lot in a lot of those cases, it was cloth masks or it was the, the thinner medical masks. It wasn't the N95 respirators. So was that worth doing then or was that enough to protect people? A mask is better than no mask, especially if everybody is masking. And that's, that's a huge difference. If everybody is masking, any mask actually limits how many droplets you're putting into the air because they get damp over time, as you would know from, from wearing one. Uh, however, when most people aren't wearing masks, now it switches. Instead of a community activity where everybody limits their droplets, now you have to protect yourself against everybody's unmitigated droplets. And that's where a respirator mask matters. Um, a, a blue rectangle Tangle medical mask has actually pretty decent fabric. The problem is it's not fitted. So these great big gaps, you don't think you need to be a rocket scientist to understand that if there are big gaps around the side of your mask, that's where you're breathing in and out of. And of course, uh, variants will go right through those gaps as well. So a fitted respirator mask, really effective. I mean, really effective at keeping you safe. Um, and and a, a cloth mask or a blue medical mask that doesn't fit is really not even in the same ballpark at all. All right. Uh, what would you say, though, what people will be looking at this in some cases and saying, well, we just spent the whole summer 
you know, going on vacations with other families. Uh, Kids were in camps with other kids and spent all of this time together. Most of it, if not all of it, unmasked. Is it different because we're now going into school settings or going into the fall flu and cold season? Or or what is different going from a summertime where it did kind of feel like back to normal? There weren't a lot of precautions that now going into the classroom. So I think, yes, going into a classroom where you're confined all day with a small group of people in a small airspace that may not have the kind of ventilation that it ought to have, we need to think about that as an amplifier. We need to think about what happens when teachers get COVID and can't work, right? So it's, it's even not just about kids. The other thing is, in all those vacations and camp outings and other things, there has been a lot of COVID among kids. Most kids don't seem to have a serious case. Some have extremely serious cases. But the kicker is this. What we know is that you can have what looks like a mild case of COVID, and it's doing harm to bodily organs, cardiovascular system, brain tissue, and uh, most kinds of cognitive impairments that we worry about, we can't even measure in kids. So I don't think it's okay to say my kids had COVID a bunch of times and they're fine. They may have had COVID a bunch of times, but whether they're fine or not, actually, that's not answerable. And honestly, I, I think it would be much, much better to try and find out the hard way uh, that perhaps there are lingering effects. So I, I want people to be really cautious. COVID is insidious. It can seem mild and can be doing dreadful things to your body because it's so very good at attacking different sites in the body. How do we know it's doing those things then, or if it is doing them, at what point will people find out, do you think? That's a tough one. I, you know, I worry most about uh, brain tissue loss, and you know, that will come out over decades in terms of early dementia, in terms of things like Parkinson's disease, perhaps. Um, we, it's, it's possible to have people te- to do batteries of cognitive tests beyond a certain age. I think probably at nine or 10 years old, you might be able to do those sorts of tests to have a baseline and then, and then repeat them later on. So you could measure some if you're, if you're interested in doing that. But again, I think the, the, what I want to focus people on is avoiding COVID, meaning not having to actually ask and answer those questions. Right, which I, I think is difficult as well in that I I think even just anecdotally, almost everybody I know has now had it. I can count on, on one hand almost the number of people I know that say for sure that they haven't already had at least one infection. Right, and what we, what we know for some people is that repeated infections are cumulative, and that may well be true for lots of people. We don't know. We know for some people that is a, a really bad trajectory. Uh, others, it doesn't seem to be quite as, as significant. I don't want to cause people to be afraid. I want people to be um, mindful. I want people to be vigilant, and I want people to take safety really seriously. And if we were talking about seatbelts or not smoking, it would be the same sort of thing. We know these things cause harm, and you can say, well, I smoked a pack of cigarettes yesterday and I feel great. Well, you know, that's the wrong frame for thinking about what is safe and what is harmful. So I want people to be healthy and I want people to be vigilant. And the idea of we can all just keep on getting COVID, that's not sustainable. That's not going to work. And and I want people to really feel that. And what about vaccination rates in that we know in BC, especially for the younger ages, our rates are lower compared to other provinces in Canada. Um, is it is it equally as important or, or is or one of the many tools? It is hugely important, especially for kids. What we know, I mean, one, one really bad long COVID thing specific to kids is called multi-system inflammatory syndrome. And one shot of an mRNA vaccine reduces that in kids by about 75%. 
two shots reduces it by 90%. I think by the time you get to three, I don't think you'd even be susceptible to it at all. That's one form of long COVID. That's great news. Just that alone ought to be enough for parents to go and get the, the, their kids vaccinated. The problem is there has been so much discourse around vaccine safety, vaccine fear. The anti-vax movement has been very vocal. It makes people worried. I think every parent wants their child to be safe. And the decision then is, what's safer, <laughs> getting the vaccine or risking getting COVID? And the vaccine's under control. I can choose to have my child jabbed or not. I can control that. And so it's easy to say, well, I'm not going to do that because there's some risk. I'm going to avoid that. It's harder to then say, what risk am I taking on by not having the vaccine? I looked at the data. I understand this. And I had my kids vaccinated as soon as possible. It's orders of magnitude difference in terms of the risks you're taking for vaccination and the risks you're taking for not. To me, it's, it's plain as day. But it, that's, that's pretty hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. And, and I understand why. Right. And it also it is also kind of difficult to, to wrap your heads around the fact like like what you're talking about, that the long term damage or the damage that we're not aware of right out of the gate, because and not to say it's the same as, as a cold or even the flu. But kids, if we use colds as example, kids get colds all the time. I mean, kids always have the sniffles and part of, you know, building that immune system. But we don't think about that virus as one that repeat uh, repeat cases of it are, are making things worse or something to really worry about. Well, I think that's a really good point. And, and actually, it just brings me to, to a, a really vital distinction, which is COVID is not a respiratory virus. Common cold is a respiratory virus. It goes in your throat and your lungs, then your body clears it and you're done. COVID starts in the respiratory system, just like polio does, just like measles do. Um, they start, they have respiratory symptoms, but it's not a respiratory disease. It's a, it's a systematic disease. And what makes COVID really pernicious is its ability to attack lining cells. And we have them all over our body, from our brain to our toes. We have lining cells line, that line our organs, that line our circulation systems. COVID is very good at invading those cells, and it will always do this. And if you have a case where the virus makes its way into your reproductive organs at one time, you may have lifelong effects from that. If you have it where it goes into your brain on, on another occasion, you may have lifelong effects from that. So common colds, flus, respiratory viruses, they stay put in the respiratory tract. COVID only starts there and then goes all over. All right. And one other question, this has to do with air quality, because we've been talking a lot about HEPA filters or making sure the indoor air quality is as good as it can be. How important is it to, is it to have those types of filters, specifically if we're looking at places like classrooms? Really important. No question in my mind, really important. We need kids to be in school. And we could, in theory, with excellent ventilation and filtration, do it without masks. And I think that's where I want us to get as a society. I want us to clean our air in the same way that we learned 200 years ago that we need to clean our water. We shouldn't defecate in our drinking water. Uh, we should manage our water so we don't get sick. We learned that 200 years ago. We're trying to learn that lesson now with air. And it's a very similar thing. We need to manage it. We need to scrub that air so that we don't make ourselves sick. So I think that's important at school. I think it's important at work. And certainly in my own house, because we think COVID is going to show up eventually, um, I'm determined that we're not going to have transmission in our house. And so I have HEPA filters, portable ones in each room, and one in the furnace. And I have a heat recovery ventilator that swaps air from the outside. And our allergies have gone way down. And we haven't had colds in ages. And it's better for your health. A 
above and beyond COVID. And I'm glad I took those steps. I, I think that's something we need to do. And unfortunately, I think we're going to need to legislate it for it to happen. And unfortunately, governments don't seem to be showing any interest in doing that yet. And, and that's really frustrating. And, uh, and what about testing and isolation as far as we are seeing more and more places remove the, the mandatory isolation or that people can kind of get back to doing things once they're feeling better? Well, the CDC in the U.S. put out its five-day isolation guidelines, which were based on business lobbying, and the businesses said, we can't have people away for that long, so let's do five days. The problem is, if you're vaccinated, a five-day isolation period brings you to the point where you're most contagious. That fifth day after symptoms, when you start to feel better, that's when you're shedding the most virus, and that's where the rules have said, come back to work or school. So that policy has actually made infections much worse. And the changes in policy now that says, well, don't even bother doing that, it's, it's more of the same, which is to say it's really ignoring the biology of this virus. We understand COVID transmission really well, and we haven't aligned our policies. It's very simple. If you have symptoms, isolate, stay home, get rapid tests, confirm it on about day five of symptoms by swabbing the back of your throat. By day 10, it, you ought to have cleared it, and you can do that. You can confirm that by doing another rapid test. That's the way to be maximally safe. That's the way to limit transmission. And governments and public health authorities are not providing that advice. All right. Uh, Colin Furness, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Thanks. Well, some new regulations are coming into force just a couple of days from now on September 8th. This was announced a few months ago by the Canadian Transportation Agency that the regulations amending the air passenger protection regulations would be coming into place. So one of the key differences will be that until now, the regulations required that refunds would be provided for flight disruptions within the control of airlines. The new requirements will require airlines to provide passengers with either a refund or a rebooking at the passenger's choice when there is a flight cancellation or a lengthy delay due to a situation outside the airline's control that prevents it from ensuring that passengers complete their itinerary within a reasonable time. So that is the exact wording from the Canadian Transportation Agency. This is going to apply to all flights to, from and within Canada including connecting flights once this takes place. So does this go far enough as far as protecting passengers? Well, Sylvie de Belfi joins us now, a lawyer with the Quebec-based advocacy group Option. Uh, And uh, Sylvie joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for the invitation. Uh, Do these new regulations, or when they go into place in a couple of days, do they go far enough to protect passengers? Uh, well, those new regu- the, the new regulations is basically precises more the uh, obligations of the uh, airline companies. But to our uh, opinion, first, uh, we thought that people had the right for refund, even though it was not specifically provided within the regulations. Especially in Quebec, we have a civil code that states that. So, uh, first of all, what happened really during the pandemic was really more of a very uh, restrictive uh, interpretation of the regulations, I would say. Uh, but that being said, those uh, those modifications uh, do have gaps uh, still uh, in the process. Uh, for example, the right for a refund w- will only apply if a person cannot be um, rebooked within a period of 48 hours. 
So for some people, it could be good. But let's say, for example, that you have to travel for a specific event, let's say a wedding or a concert somewhere uh, that's due on Saturday, but you're rebooked on the uh, on the Sunday. <laughs> and it's right. still within the 48 hours. Uh, the problem is uh, your travel is really um, uh, it's, it's, it's useless now. So uh, for those people who will not have the right to be reimbursed. So that's that's a bit of a gap there. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, what about also, we've been hearing with so many flight delays and cancellations and airlines in some cases have been saying, oh, well, it was a crewing issue. There wasn't enough staff, but that was out of our control because it was a safety measure and therefore didn't have to compensate. Does this change that then as far as it takes out that whether or not it's it's the fault of the airline? Uh, not that much, uh, in the sense that uh, the, the rights of the passenger depends really on why the flight is uh, is cancelled or is late. So uh, basically, well, compensation is one thing, reimbursement is another thing. So um, when it is within the uh, the carrier's control, they have um, more heavy, uh, heavier, uh, I would say, uh, impl- uh, obligations towards the passenger, which is still has a certain logic within within it. If they take make a business decision, for example, to cancel a flight because it's only uh, it's only half full, for example, uh, that's not you know uh, up to the passengers to. Uh, it's really a business uh, decision, so it's not something that happens like a, a, I would say a, a snowstorm, for example. So this is why there is uh, a, devil, a different level of liability. Now, the main problem is that when there's a disturbance in uh, a, a disruption uh, in a flight, uh, passengers must rely on whatever information the airline company provides. So it, that is a bit difficult. And what we've seen is that in order to lower their liability, they tend to say that it's not within their control because then the compensations are lower and the liabilities are lower. So, uh, And then it's up to the consumers to go to the CDA's office and file a complaint, which, of course, takes time. So uh, then again, there's, there's a problem within the system in that matter that a lot of things finishes to be on the uh, passenger's shoulder to have their rights being respected. Right. And going back to the 48 hours, then, if you would either have to be refunded or be you would have you would have to be refunded if you couldn't be rebooked on another flight within 48 hours. Was that something? Do you think? Because I understand too that airlines were consulted before these rules came out or before these changes were made. Is that something too that that airport airlines would have asked for? Because it does give them a bit more leeway or, or makes it a bit more a bit easier for them. It is possible, and, and for a lot of people, that 48 hours is not a problem. So, and what we did say uh, in our comments uh, back then uh, to the CDs as well is that uh, it, it really depends on the situation. But when the travel, uh, the, the event renders the travel uh, useless, uh, then again, uh, the consumers should have a choice to be reimbursed, for example, uh, for uh, if the flight is canceled. So that's something, it's, of course, it would be a case-by-case scenario, uh, but let's say you're stuck somewhere and you need to go home if it's 48 hours later you will probably still want to go home so it's it will not apply to everybody 
Right. That that makes a a lot of sense. Uh, Do do you think it goes far enough or are there any other changes that will better protect uh, customers or or travelers? Because it, it did seem to. Obviously, we know that travel was wildly disrupted because of the pandemic. Do do we come out of it stronger with these better regulations? It does clarify a little bit when it comes to reimbursement, because what we've seen during the pandemic is that uh, airline company, we were just saying that even though they could not provide the service because all frontiers were closed and uh, flights were uh, staying on ground, uh, they simply said that they did not have the obligation to reimburse. So at least with the new uh, part of the regulation, at least that is stated as as a minimum that people should at least get reimbursed. Uh, but then again, there are some gaps that can we I think we can still work on. Right, and certainly that was something we were hearing early on when everything was grounded that that the airlines were extending the the grace period, and that normally maybe you would have had one year to use the ticket, and they were extending it to two years. But even that, for a lot of people, not knowing when we were going to be traveling again, in a lot of cases, I think people just wanted their money back. Absolutely, and some people simply needed the money for something else. Lots of people were really impacted by the pandemic. Some people lost their jobs and maybe did not have uh, the money to travel anymore. Or I've heard of other stories, like people who are retired or getting older, they're saying, you know, we're not too sure in two years will we still have the health to travel. So these are all reasonable reasons uh, for people to ask for a reimbursement instead of a rain check. Uh, do you think then it will be easy enough for, for passengers moving forward? Like you said, there have always been those avenues where you may have to go to the Transportation Authority or you may have to file an actual complaint. Will this make it a bit more streamlined? So, like you, And like you said, too, for, for most people, 48 hours, it's an inconvenience. It's not when you wanted to travel, but it won't ruin your vacation or ruin getting home. Will this be enough to kind of streamline it for people then that they don't have to worry about filing a complaint or, or chasing after? the airlines it really it will depend on the uh, airline companies uh for the uh, depend on their transparency about what the motives are about uh for the uh flight disruptions really uh and, and that's really i would think the the most difficult part of the uh this regulations that we have to really rely on what they say and uh of course they do have an interest into giving uh, as much as possible, the excuse that it's not within their control, even though now they still have the obligation to rebook or to refund, but still uh, they will try to get their liability lower. When we've seen that during the summer, when they were saying out of staff means out of our control, well, I'm not that. Uh, I'm not too sure about that. No, and I think a lot of people called them out on that, didn't they? Or saying, well, well, if you're not in control of staffing and crewing and such, who is? Exactly. And when the pandemic started, we could understand that it took everybody by surprise. But now when you're managing a big company like an airline company, you know for sure that people will get sick and that you'll have maybe a higher level of people uh, who are having to take a vacation or take a few days off because they're sick. So this should be able to be planned ahead. Uh, What does it do then also for individual airlines in that one airline's rules about refunds or rebooking might be very different from another airline's rules about that. Does it does it kind of make them all the same? Uh, not necessarily. What the regulation is, is really the minimum. Hmm. So airlines are still allowed to provide more than what the, the minimum says in the regulation. So 
uh, if uh, uh, an airline would say, for example, if you're, we cannot rebook you within 24 hours, we will refund you, that would be something that is more generous, that would be acceptable. But at least it gives uh, at least a certain uh, floor level, uh, but it is still up to the uh, airline companies to provide good service. So. Right. And do you think, are we focusing too much on airlines or is that justified that we're doing that? Should we also, though, be looking at things that have been causing huge delays at airports, like the screening staff, the number of screeners and, and other the other parts of the airport that uh, security, customs, what have you, that are also very important? Uh, well, these are measures that are not within the, uh, the, the airline's control. So, uh, but should the government maybe take a look at what the measures were put in place or by the airports or by the uh, custom services to make sure that everything goes right? Uh, maybe that's something else that we should take a, sh- uh, we should take a look at as well. All right. Sylvie de Belfi, thank you so much for joining us. It was great talking with you today. Thank you very much. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, we are learning a little bit more about one of the suspects in a stabbing rampage in Saskatchewan. We know that Miles Sanderson is still the subject of a manhunt. There is a lot of activity on the James Smith Cree First Nation today, and we will bring you any details as they become available. Uh, We also know that Miles Sanderson faces numerous charges. He has not been convicted of any in this instance at this point. However, we also have Parole Board of Canada documents showing his history, both his childhood and his upbringing and his charges and convictions in the past. And joining us to talk a little bit more about this and his statutory release is Wally Opal, a former Attorney General in BC, as well as a judge. Thank you so much for being with us. Always good to be with you, Jill. Well, I think a lot of people will hear these details or see these details about his past and about the reasons why he was granted release and was allowed back in the community and wonder why somebody with that background that was deemed not exactly a no risk to reoffend would be released. You know, well, Jill, at the outset, I want to say there's nothing good that can be said about any of this, any of what happened the circumstances and the horrific tragedies that took place. But in fairness to the parole board and other other bodies that may be subject to criticism, under the corrections law, if a person serves two-thirds of his or her sentence, then they're automatically entitled to release, to be released. And that's what happened here. The parole board has its supervisory role after that, uh, but there's nothing more that it can do. If you look back at this, this young man's history, it's horrific. He was abused as a young child uh, living on the reserve. He apparently did not receive the help that he should have received, and his circumstances got worse. And 59 convictions, I don't, I don't think there's anything more that needs to be said about that. It seems that every time he would be convicted of an offense, it would be an offense for a, a robbery, a minor robbery, if you can call it that, a domestic assault that involved families and all of that. So that, so that what happened is that it appears that the judges, uh, given the evidence that they were given, uh, did not really impose lengthy jail terms. In fairness, a lot of these offenses did not require or mandate uh, lengthy jail terms. Having said that, if you got 59 convictions against you 
on your record, then that person should not be out. And there should be some provision wherein the some kind of a lengthy jail terms ought to have been imposed on him, depending on the offenses for which he was convicted. So I don't believe the public for being upset. A lot of innocent uh, lives were lost here, and uh, there does not seem to be any excuse or any good answer for what happened. Uh, in one of the cases in the parole board, in the decision readings, it goes, it says, in November of 2017, you stood watch outside while an accomplice robbed a fast food restaurant armed with a firearm. He fled with $150. Video surveillance showed him getting into a waiting vehicle. Your files indicates that you threatened your accomplice into committing the robbery by hitting him in the head with a firearm and then stomping on his head. It says the use of a gun in this incident is noted as a serious concern. Would that, just going through the, the convictions and what he's accused of and what, what his past includes, that, because it was, the, a firearm was involved in that, does that make it different? Or, or does that, is that something the parole board would look at? Absolutely. Uh, that's an aggravating circumstance when a firearm is used in the commission of any offense. There's an automatic consecutive sentence that goes with that. No, it clearly is an aggravating factor. And uh, I'm not going to criticize any of the judges that were involved because I haven't seen the reasons that were given or what the Crown said to the judge in any particular case or what the defense lawyer said and what resources, if any, were available to this man. But I obviously they bent over backwards to help him because of his horrible circumstances and uh, maybe the protection of the public is something that was compromised. It appears that way. And uh, in fairness, I haven't seen the reasons for judgment in any of these cases. But uh, I can say that when you got 59 convictions, then really we need to take a second look at what's happening. Well, and, and you're right in saying there's absolutely nothing good about any of this. But reading through the documents as well, and what you had pointed out, also, really two two different stories emerging from this. On the one hand, where the parole board, where it's written, it says that your criminal offending commenced at a young age and has continued with no significant breaks for almost two decades. That's where it says, as an adult, you have been convict, you have convictions for fifty nine offenses, and then goes on to list some of them. But then it also talks about his childhood, saying you have a history of drug and alcohol use, and said that you started drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana around age 12 to cope with your problems, and you started using cocaine around age 14. I mean, not making an excuse at all for this behavior or the behavior that's stated in here, but it's just, it's, it's just failure all around, it seems. You're absolutely right, Jill. And what's the, what you've seen here is the worst of the worst in that this, this uh, young, young boy or young man really uh, did not have any kind of a fair start to begin with. And when I say that, I'm not excusing his conduct for what he has done, which is horrific. But the fact is, when you're a young boy and you're given, you're living with your father who is abusing, physically abusing his partner, and that type of violence is taken for granted in the home, then really, uh, what what chance does a young boy have at that age? And of course, it just gets worse and worse. And it doesn't matter... How many breaks you give a young man, the the damage has been done at a very early age. And really, I think really the priority of the criminal justice system at some stage should be, well, 
what about the protection of the public? And that's really a factor that ought to have been considered here. And maybe it wasn't. But uh, again, I'm not in a position to know what the judges said or what the police said or the prosecutors at that time. But it's clear that this man should not have been released. Uh, And again, I don't fault any part of the system for that, except to say that under our system, the corrections law states that when you serve two thirds of your sentence, you must be released subject to the supervision of the parole board. And the parole board here, in fairness, was quite actively involved because he went to the parole board to ask that the restrictions be released, and they summarily dismissed all his applications. So I think the parole board here did the right thing, uh, but things didn't improve, and the the public was at jeopardy. And that's really the horrific thing that's taken place here. Right. And even looking at the decision as well. So his statutory release was suspended because the parole board found that he wasn't being honest or it says wasn't being open and honest with his parole supervisor. But then th- that was the, the the reprimand or the suspension was lifted. I think that's one of the lines that that people yeah. are people are finding difficult to, to yeah. looking at this history and his history, the fact that that was suspended, because it then goes on to say it is the board's opinion that you will not present an undue risk to society if released on statutory release and that your release will contribute to the protection of society by facilitating your reintegration into society as a law-abiding citizen. It just doesn't seem to match what else we're reading well, you're in right. there. Jill, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's an inconsistency there because the parole board does have the right, the authority under the law, to suspend statutory release. And here it appears they did have some evidence from which they could have drawn that conclusion, and they didn't. And uh, what they did was they uh, they obviously had some evidence before them that would indicate that this sort of thing wouldn't happen, uh, keeping in mind that human behavior is often unpredictable, and it certainly was here. But, uh, no, that's a, I think that's a legitimate concern, a legitimate criticism. But when I say that the parole board overall has a limited authority in these cases, what I mean is that, they are really reduced to a, a statutory, a supervisory role. And the, the Corrections Act says that all offenders, having served two-thirds of their sentence, must be released. And uh, the parole board thereafter does have that overriding uh, authority to suspend that release. Uh, the board also found, too, that, that a big part of the issue was alcohol use and drug use. And as part of the release, he was told, to that he must remain sober, that not to do drugs. There were many people that he was not to be around, not to associate with. How much, though, do, do we actually monitor those things and make sure that people are following those rules that, of release? That's, that's an excellent question. Uh, the difficulty with those conditions is it's, they're almost invariably difficult to police, to difficult to enforce. You can tell an offender, and, you know, I've had many before me in, in a previous lifetime, you say you must abstain from the use of alcohol. But unless you have somebody monitoring that person for 24 hours a day, uh, you're left sometimes to uh, rely on a probation officer who obviously can't per- supervise a person for 24-7. So no question that those types of conditions are difficult to uh, to manage, difficult to enforce. So maybe the next step may be that there should be some kind of mandatory treatment, in-house treatment, 
And I don't know if society is prepared to go that far. So those are things that maybe we need to think about. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Wally Opal, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to be with you, Jill.